Good morning, everyone. I'm Pastor Evan. Hope you're doing well this morning. Are you? Okay, good. Uh, I'm going to read Beth's notes here, so I hope... I'm just kidding, you didn't give me these. Since I gave you yours, I figured, yeah. Just. If a joke isn't funny, you don't have to laugh at it. Hey, well, here's the thing. We're going to study a look at Psalm 84 this morning, so I'm going to invite you to find Psalm 84. We've already heard the first third and the second third of it. Now we'll hear the middle third in just a moment. While you're finding that, let me just tell you, uh, there have been two occasions in my life when I have uh, run into Tibetan Buddhist monks, the first time almost literally. Uh, I was in Vancouver, British Columbia. The Dalai Lama was in town, and out of nowhere, as I was driving very slowly, a Tibetan Buddhist monk just came crossing the street. I stopped suddenly. It was, there was plenty of room, but it shocked me that he came out of nowhere, which is normal in Canada. The pedestrian has the right of way everywhere. But he was a little less peaceful in his demeanor when that happened as well. So it was a little too close for comfort for all of us. The second time was when uh, I was serving as a pastor in Indianapolis, uh, Stephanie, and we just had one kid at the time, maybe two, I don't remember the time frame. I think it was just one at the time. Uh, so it was three of us living in one of the parsonages um, next to the church. And right across the street, our driveway met the... Sophie, can I go down just a little bit in the house, please? Thanks. Um, our, our driveway went just a little bit... like It met with the driveway of the church across the street, which is a really big church. And so like on Christmas Eve, we couldn't get out of our driveway, that kind of a thing. Um, but they were doing a sermon series across the street on how basically all religions were the same and led to the same place, which is false. Um, and they uh, had, as part of that, Tibetan Buddhist monks come in and create a sand mandala, you know, where they painstakingly put each individual piece of sand in this beautiful mosaic in the front of their sanctuary. Um, and so we went over and saw it, but every day, uh, you know, these monks would come in right in front of our driveway and go out. And it was... Uh, Interesting to see. It was a beautiful thing uh, to see, but I would never allow it in a sanctuary of a church I served, and I had been asked before, um, and I said no because we wouldn't allow that. But even here in Lincoln, um, I remember reading a sermon from somebody who preached a very similar kind of sermon where they said, you know, uh, Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life, and he meant that to his disciples, but everybody else it meant I'm a way, a truth, and a life, which is also false. That's not at all what Jesus meant when he said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. But the point I'm making is this. You had the sermon series on all religions lead to the same place. Jesus, somebody says, I am a way of truth and a life, which is false. There is a belief that persists around us that all religions lead to the same place. Basically, they all go the same way. They're all going to, everybody, all paths lead to God ultimately, and we'll all get there. That's not the Christian claim. That's not the claim of Scripture at all, that all paths lead to the same place. In fact, the claim of Scripture is there's only one path that leads to God, that's through Jesus Christ. And every other path, even if they look nice on the outside, is really the path of folly ultimately leading to doom and eternal separation from God. That's the message of the gospel. And Psalm 84 is walking that same kind of path, but it's telling us how to not fall into the trap of believing that there are other paths and other ways to go when things get difficult. That's what Psalm 84 is telling us. When things are dry, when things are rough, don't forget that you were designed to be in the presence of God. That's how you were designed. You're not going to work any other way, ultimately. 
And so the point that I want us to see this morning, and you could see it more than just in Psalm 84, but it's here, is you were designed for the blessing of God's presence. And there are a lot of times when we have the temptation to kind of veer off when things get rough, when things get dry, but always look for the path that leads back to him, even in the toughest of times, because we're designed for that and we're invited back to him especially in those times when it's tough. Let's look at Psalm 84, verses 5 through 9, then. Psalmist writes, Blessed are those whose strength is in you, whose hearts are set on pilgrimage. As they pass through the valley of Baca, they make it a place of springs. The autumn rains also cover it with pools. They go from strength to strength till each appears before God in Zion. Hear my prayer, Lord God Almighty. Listen to me, God of Jacob. Look on our shield, O God. Look with favor on your anointed one. This is the word of the Lord. There is uh, the ancient belief among Greek philosophers, and it's persisted in other areas too, uh, is that history is circular, that history just goes around and around and repeats itself and repeats itself. And they, they got to that conclusion uh, because they believe that matter, you know, the stuff that we're made of and the stuff the, that you're sitting in and all that uh, was pre-existent and whatever gods they believed in just, they didn't make it out of nothing. They just put it together and pieced it together. So that stuff just gets formed and reformed and reformed and reformed and there's no end really. Again, that's not the view of scripture though. And that's important for us to recognize as we look at what's being said in the Psalm and we look at the fact of the path leading back to God is to recognize that what, history, what Scripture tells us is that history is linear. It had a decisive start. Out of nothing, God created something, and God's outside that system, and it's going in a direction, and eventually it comes to an end. That's how God has planned it, and that's how God is working things, whether we realize it or not. And the fancy Greek word that gets applied to that concept throughout Scripture is telos, um, that is, that it, it has an end, is really all that that means. But what that, what that entails is that there's fulfillment. At some point, there's a conclusion that makes sense, that matters to what happened throughout history, to what God was doing. That there's judgment. That's really what's encapsulated in the word telos. That just like an accountant at the end of the year closes the books and you can't add anything more to it, that at the end, there's going to be judgment that God is going to judge and say, okay, now the books are closed on this chapter of history. And those who are in this get the next chapter, and those who aren't are separated. And, and the idea there, judgment, let us not buy into the world around us and fear judgment if we follow Christ, right? Judge, judging and judgment are a bad word in our culture. But if you know Christ, if you've been washed by his blood, if you've been saved through the resurrection and said yes to him, judgment is going to be a glorious day. Sin, death, and the devil go bye-bye, and we get to be with God in glory. Isn't that a great thing? Now, if we're not on that side, it's going to be a terrifying day, and that's why we should actually be very much disciples who make disciples, because we don't want anybody to experience the terror. We want them to experience the glory. But that's where God is taking things. Fulfillment, judgment, that history has a decisive end. And because of all of that, there's purpose. The things we do in this life matter. The choices we make matter because there is judgment at the end. That we can work with God or we can work against God in this life with our actions and our attitudes. We can take the right path or the wrong paths. 
there are consequences to our decisions. That's what it means that history has a direction and is linear. But the, the conflicting issue for us can be, even if we believe that history is linear, even if we believe that there's judgment in the end, even if we believe we're saved through Jesus Christ, when we get in those dry and difficult times, when the world pushes in, when situations push in, when we feel spiritually dry and distant from God and have a longing for him, we can start to believe that history is circular and we're just stuck. And what we end up being like is, this is the image that came to me this week, is a kitten chasing its tail. Uh, we've been through in our house the kitten stage twice uh, in at least our marriage, Stephanie's marriage and mine. And I think it's hilarious, although your kittens, or your curtains, not kittens, curtains take a beating through that time. Um, but I'm convinced that kittens don't realize that their tail is actually attached to their body until they're at least six months old. Because they'll chase it like it's some foreign object, and they're having a load of fun with it, and then they chomp on it super hard. And you think, that's got to hurt, but it doesn't. I don't know why it doesn't hurt a kitten when they chomp on it. But somewhere after six months, they chomp less hard. Why? Because it hurts if they do it too hard, right? And I think that's how we end up being sometimes when we're in really tough spots, in really dry moments when things oppress us and push on us, and we're, we're spinning, is that we kind of can end up feeling like we're chasing our tail, like there's no forward progress, anything, and eventually reality sets in and it kind of hurts. And then we're at a decisive moment. What do I do now? That's where the psalmist is. What do I do now with this longing and this distance? My heart longs, my soul, he basically says my soul three different ways. My soul yearns, it longs for the living God. You can hear it right there at the beginning. And so it's Psalm 84, with all this beautiful imagery, is a psalm for dry times. It's a psalm of pilgrimage to say, here's how to come back home. And somebody pointed out to me years ago that the idea of longing isn't as bad as we sometimes think it is. When, when you feel distant from God, particularly, and you long for the presence of God, that's actually an act of love. You want to be back with God in close relationship. Longing is not a bad thing. It's an indication that we want to be close again. And that's what the psalmist is. I long for that. I long for what I miss in that. And what the psalmist tells us we need along the path is perseverance, which I would suggest to you perseverance requires two things out of us. One is the right direction and the right proximity to God. Those are the two things perseverance requires out of us. And we'll see the psalmist uses all this imagery of proximity, being close to God. I'd rather be a doorkeeper in the house of the Lord than doing anything else away from him. I'd rather be as close as I can, even doing the most mundane job. And that direction, when we feel lost, that direction matters to get back to that proximity to God. And we, we should recognize, it's, it seems silly to say it out loud, but we should say it out loud. Dry times occur for all of us in life when we feel distant from God, when things seem to pull us away from that relationship with God. When we feel parched, I mean, just all through in, in your very soul, you just feel parched and dried out. And there are two ways we can, we can actually approach it then at that point when you're dry and you feel distant from God. One is with direction and the opposite is without direction. There's really no other option when you get down to it. If you do it with direction, you do it with perseverance. You're looking for that direction and proximity to God. God, I long, I wanna be close, I feel distant, I'm not going to give up on the path that takes me back to your presence. That's how you do it when you're dry. 
if you do it without direction, then you're functionally like a fish out of water, flopping along on the shore, getting farther and farther away from the liquid that will save you. And, and we encounter this kind of fish out of water scenario with people when they make up their own religion. I've run into plenty of these people, probably you have too, where they, they have this sort of spiritual hunger inside of themselves and they say, well, let me just take all the best stuff from all the things around me and just kind of piece together some belief system that might work. They're, they're looking for water. Or uh, I've encountered it a number of times too where people simplify that process and kind of have a primary religion and then they kind of try and piece together other pieces of one other religion on top of it to kind of make it a unique experience. They're spiritually hungry and they're trying to figure out how to get back to water. Or uh, most recently I encountered somebody who had just had two separate religions that they practiced together and I said, that's illogical, let's talk about this. Um, and we are still talking about it, but it doesn't make sense practically or logically, but that's, they're, they're looking for water. And while not the right way to go about it, I have a tremendous amount of respect for the honesty that's involved in people who are in those positions because they're spiritually hungry and at least looking. It's when we're in those situations where we're flopping on the ground like a fish out of water, and many people do this. They go around through life as if their life has purpose, but they couldn't possibly tell you what it is nor where it's derived from. They are spiritually hungry. They are dry without direction. We don't want to be in any of those situations. And so the psalmist, actually, if you see the three anchors that the psalmist seems to use in this psalm are three blessings that put us back on that path of perseverance, of direction, and proximity to God. There are three blessings that are there in verses 4, 5, and 12. So let's look at verse 4. Psalmist says, blessed are those who dwell in your house. They are ever praising you. We're blessed when we're in the house of the Lord. Now, the imagery here is that of the temple, but it exceeds the bounds of the temple. The imagery needs to go beyond that to recognize that God's dwelling place is wherever God is, and we want to be close to him. But the temple is the, the kind of concrete way that is imaged here. And God's dwelling, we can see a couple things around these verses, that God's dwelling is a house of victory. Just in the previous verse, in verse 3, it says, Lord Almighty, my King and my God, before verse 4 starts, uh, you can see that the, the term is Yahweh Saba there, the title for God, which means, you'll, mine says Lord Almighty, almost all the translations say Lord Almighty, it's Lord of hosts is what it is. The God who commands the heavenly armies against the forces of evil. And he's already won, but he's battling the forces of evil around to make sure that those of us who he's invited to the path stay on the path and can persevere to the end. He gives us strength, the Lord of hosts. Blessed are we when we're in his house, because his house is a house of victory. God is victorious over depression, dryness, and demons, and anything else that would try and take us away from his presence. Anybody thankful for that in the house? God's house is a house of victory. God's dwelling is also a house of reconciliation. The image of the altar is in there. 
The psalmist finds himself at the altar because his soul longs, his soul yearns to find satisfaction and, and make things right with God because he is out of sync with God. He is out of communion. He's guilty, whatever it might be. And only at the altar has God made a way for reconciliation to occur and atonement to occur. And he says, I want to go there because that's a house of victory and a house where things can be made right with God and the longing ends. And I am dwelling with him. It's a place of healing and wholeness when I am in the house of the Lord. And we only get to God's house on one path. And it strikes me, as we've talked about this, this sort of cultural notion that many paths lead to God, we don't apply this thinking in other areas. Have you ever noticed this? Go back to my student days in British Columbia and Vancouver. I, since I was a student, I had the, like the super mega bus pass and I could, and it's, uh, Vancouver has one of the world's best uh, public transit systems, I'm told, and it was very good. I mean, there was a ferry as part of the bus system. I just took it for fun sometimes, because I could. Um, I could get anywhere. And so, but all, a lot of the bus lines ended at the University of British Columbia, which is where I was. I wasn't at the school, but that's, that's the campus I was on. And so when I needed to get back home, you got 10, 12, 15 different bus lines right there. Now, it's quite logical to just say right here that if I got onto a bus line that was not my bus line, I wouldn't get home, right? It's pretty logical, right? Why don't we apply that same exact logic to the world of truth when it comes to what's right when it comes religiously? There is truth, and some of those things are not pointing to the truth that are out there that claim to be right. What the psalmist says is there's only one right path. It's back to God's house. And we know that the conclusion of the story, it only comes through Jesus Christ that we get back to that house and get in proximity to God. And sometimes that path is going to be tough when we walk down that, that way. The author of Hebrews kind of gives us a more pronounced picture of what that path is going to look like and the need for perseverance in Hebrews 13 Starting at verse 11, he says, The high priest carries the blood of animals into the most holy place as a sin offering. So we've got that temple imagery again. But the bodies are burned outside the camp. And so Jesus also suffered outside the city gate to make the people holy through his own blood. Let us then go to him outside the camp, bearing the disgrace he bore. For here we do not have an enduring city, but we are looking for the city that is to come. We need the path of perseverance if we actually follow Jesus Christ. Our Savior suffered on our behalf, and if we follow him, we're going to have tough days, unquestionably. Some days are going to be harder than others, and if we don't follow the path that he has laid out for us, we are going to fail in the path of perseverance and getting back to the house of God. We will not find proximity with the living God other than through Jesus Christ. And, and I was really struck when I was thinking through this this week uh, with what's going on halfway around the world in Afghanistan and all that's been going on there. Um, all kinds of different conversations about that. It's awful uh, what is happening. And there, was, there were reports that I was reading about how much Christianity has really gotten hit every province. There are Christians in every province of Afghanistan now. And of course, if you have the Bible, most of them have an app on their phone at this point. If you have that and you're found with that on your phone, the consequences are pretty severe. And it, was, it is predicted by a couple different 
uh, nonprofit Christian organizations that work in that part of the world that Afghanistan will overtake North Korea in very short order as being the hardest place to be a Christian in the world very quickly. And places like Afghanistan, North Korea, India, places where it's really hard to be a believer, when they read stuff like, it's blessed to be in the house of the Lord, the, the house of the Lord is a place of victory and reconciliation, they get that more than we do. They get that. They understand that. May we have such faith and may we pray that we would pray for them and pray that we would have such faith as well that we understand what a refuge the house of the Lord is. Suffering will come. Difficulty will come. But the Lord gives us strength on the path to make it back home to him. And you can see as we go on, uh, verse 5 actually talks about that. Blessed are those whose strength is in you whose hearts are set on pilgrimage. This is a pilgrimage psalm. It's not with the other ones, Psalm 120 through 132. It's just kind of an independent one from the sons of Korah here. But it talks about the Valley of Baca after this point, that that's a dry place. Um, And it's it's a physically dry place that it's talking about here. But it's not a real place. So it's, it's it's a metaphorical Valley of Baca. Imagine a dry place, a desert, where there's only one tree standing there. Baca is like a balsam wood tree or something to that effect. Uh, there's a little unclarity on that. But there's one tree, I'm in a desert, walking through, parched and dry. That's the image that's at play here. And what the psalmist is telling us as he goes on is that God's abundance is even there. Because even that, the presence of that tree is a sign of hope. That something can grow in the midst of this dryness and this place. And God, in his richness, will make that happen. It's a sign that God can do more out of this dry time and this dry land. It's the blessing of his presence that we need. And with God, there is no such thing as scarcity. In our lives, there is, right? So uh, those that are around the world that we talked about in Afghanistan, North Korea, places like that, they experience scarcity. They don't have things. Lots of things they lack. You and I, in a much simpler, more mundane way, if I eat something from the pantry, it's gone, right? I have consumed it. And it either has to be purchased again, and then you keep going back and produced and then grown and all that. So we have to create it again or grow it. We can't create it. Only God can do that. But with God, scarcity is not a thing. God's the owner of a cattle on a thousand hills. He can make whatever he wants whenever he wants it. And if he wills it, it'll happen. That's who God is. So abundance is not an issue for God. That's his character. When Elijah runs into trouble and is hungry and he's with the widow who's also starving, God provides and continues to provide and provide and provide and provide. He could do it forever and ever as long as he chose to do it. When Jesus is in the wilderness being tempted by Satan, Satan says, you know, you can turn these stones into bread. And just to paraphrase, Jesus is like, yeah, I could, but I'm not going to, right? I mean, that's not a heavy lift for Jesus because he turns water into wine doesn't have to do magic potions or spells or anything. He just does it. You can just think it, and it'll happen, and speak it. It'll happen. That's the power of God. When God wants to reach new people, in Acts chapter 2, he takes people who don't speak the language of the people standing around, and he says, here, have this language, and use it right now. They didn't go to years of study to learn that language. They, God just gave it to them. God is abundant. I was reminded, I thought through this, of a, a gentleman I heard speak a number of years ago from, he was uh, from Cambodia. He uh, got, somehow survived the Khmer Rouge, but was taken to one of the cooperative farms. Um, and he was an intellectual, so I was, it's surprising that he survived. He was surprised he survived. But he got taken to one of these collective farms, 
and was told when they got out there, okay, you need to build an irrigation system. We need the plans by tomorrow or else we're going to kill you. And he said, well, that's, he was thinking, he didn't say this out loud. He thought, that's, I had no idea how to do such a thing. That's not my area of expertise. They just picked him because he was an intellectual. You know how to figure things out, figure this out. Otherwise, we'll find somebody else. He said, God gave me the plans to make an irrigation system. Made an irrigation system. Survived it. Years later, he ended up in the States, and now he goes back to share Christ, where he, was, he almost lost his life, and where God mag- uh, remarkably worked in his life. And what you see that, that fits with what's going on here is the image here, that Valley of Baca, it says it doesn't stay dry for very long because God brings springs, and then he makes pools of water in this place as his blessing comes down. And that, that pools, by the way, is another word for blessing. He blesses. He rains it down. The dry land doesn't stay dry when God's involved and we're walking on the path with him. God's a God of abundance. As we persevere, God gives us strength in our weakness so that we can get to the next point of strength in our weakness. And God continues to provide water in dry times. His blessing is one of strength to strength and we regain purpose and direction as we follow him. Walking in the right direction towards proximity to God. The last blessing that's there in the text is verse 12. It says, Lord Almighty, blessed is the one who trusts in you. I think this is the key to the whole thing, the piece of trust. Do I trust God when things are hard? Do I trust that God is a God of abundance when things are dry and when I long, when things push in and oppress around me? Trust is, of course, built over time, and it's one of these incredibly strong and fragile things all at the same time that can be broken in an instant. It takes years to develop broken like that. And you can look around just as a a fun experiment. I saw it in a show last night, actually. As you watch shows and movies, look for where people say, do you trust me? And look how long they've known each other before they say it, right? Because it kind of defies logic. Uh, Trust is built over time. And yet, you'll see in movies, they're about to be in a you know, crazy encounter or something like that. And they're like, do you trust me? And, and the person's like, yes, I'll jump off the cliff with you with a broken parachute, you know, and all this kind of stuff that's going on. But the real answer should be, no, I don't trust you. We met like four minutes ago. How could I possibly trust you? Right? But just as a te- look at it, because we kind of get deceived, I think, by what we watch and when it comes to trust. Trust is built over time. time. Dry times can break that trust when we get stuck in that circle and that cycle, sometimes if we're not careful, we can begin to say, maybe I don't trust God. Maybe he isn't a God of abundance, but a God of scarcity. Maybe he isn't a God of reconciliation. Maybe he isn't a God who lives in a house of victory. That trust is built over time with God, and God invites us into that abundant life-giving path at regular intervals so that we can build trust and have that reserve from strength to strength in those difficult times. And the temptation in the difficult times is to look in the wrong places for water. So I was thinking about it this week. uh, About, I don't know, a couple decades ago, I was out hiking in a national park, and the ranger that was with us was talking about, you know, the rule of threes, you know, three minutes of, of air and three days without water, three weeks without food. And they said, you know, if you ever get stuck and you're lost out in, you know, the wilderness, um, you don't want to drink the water if it's unfiltered because there's a lot of bacteria, particularly Giardia, 
But if you're getting to the three-day point and you haven't had water, you're better off drinking the dirty water and at least chancing it with Giardia because at least that can be cured with medication. Uh, dying of thirst can't. So give, give it a shot at that point. You at least buy yourself a little time. But it strikes me, as I think through that kind of example, um, if you apply that to what we're talking about here when we look in the wrong places for a source of thirst when we're dry, if we drink bad water, trying to cure that spiritual hunger inside of us, we still need something external to fix it because it's only going to make the problem worse, not better. God is the thing that we need in that moment. We need to trust that God has our best in mind. Building trust with God is how we endure dry times. And we need to develop a storehouse of trust in the living God so that when those struggles come, we trust God's promises that God's tomorrow is better than today rather than not trusting that, rather than having that trust broken in those dry times and looking elsewhere for the thing that only God can fulfill. How do you build that kind of trust? Well, uh, I was told when relationships break in real life, uh, it seems counterintuitive, but it, it, we, our tendency is to want to pull away from people when things get tough, but we actually want to come together if you want to build trust. Even if it's hard, that's the only way you're going to work through it and get where you need to go. Same thing is true with God. At the moment where we feel the longing the most, the best thing to do is lean in to the path that comes back towards God, not away from it. And our tendency sometimes can be to lean away from it. God, I don't feel like you're a God of abundance, so I'm going to go elsewhere for water. We don't sometimes say it, but we sometimes do it with our actions. At the moment when you feel the longing most, lean in towards God. We need that proximity to God. We need the body of believers. Thanks, Beth, for your testimony about that. We need that in order to survive. We need small groups we, where God says, wherever two or three are gathered in my name, there am I in the midst of them. He doesn't say where one is gathered, where two or three. We need one another. That's how he designed us to do that. We need his word, his enduring word in those times to live in us and through us. We need direction and we need ultimately to say yes to his word, Jesus Christ. Otherwise, we're going to be flailing like fish on the shore, getting farther and farther from the water. And there's only one direction that really goes. And so the challenge today is to make sure you pick the right path that builds that trust with God. Some of us have a longing right now. We feel far. We've given up in some cases on disciplines and things that pull us closer to God. Today's the day to draw into those, not away from those. Today's the day to lean into things that sometimes are hard because we pick our path to build trust with God so that our longing leads to lasting relationship so that brokenness leads to reconciliation, so that dryness leads to springs in the desert. From strength to strength, he will take us because you and I were designed for the blessing of God's presence, and we always need to look for the path that heads back to him. Let's pray right now for that. Lord, there are many things that we do in this life where we are challenged. The Psalms encourage us right here, but they also challenge us Better is one day in your courts than a thousand elsewhere, God, but sometimes we spend a thousand days elsewhere, and we know our time. We know how we spend our time, and sometimes, God, our time says we're, we want to be somewhere else, even if our mind says, I should be with you. Lord, don't let our hearts and our minds deceive us. May we walk on the path towards you in proximity to you, in the right direction towards you, following your Son, Jesus Christ, and if we are feeling that longing this morning, Lord, we relent. 
God, we relent and we come to your altar and we lay that down and we say, it's only the sacrifice of your son, Jesus Christ, that will make this right. And right now, Lord, things aren't right. Right now, things are dry. The world is pushing in on me. I feel oppressed and weighed down. Lord, we know that the struggle is real when we follow your son, Jesus Christ. Help us follow him first and foremost and walk in faithfulness from that point on so that we experience the reconciliation that we need so that we know the blessing of your presence and the wholeness and healing that you provide. We won't get the full cure now, Lord, but your tomorrow is better and we know that cure is coming. Lord, help us embrace that reality, that hope today. Amen.